Welcome to this live event. This is a part of our Shaping the Post-COVID World series. Uh, today, we're going to talk about lessons learned from the pandemic. I'm Professor Simon Hicks. I'm Pro-Director for Research at the LSE and also the Harold Lasky Professor of Political Science. Um, I'm going to introduce our four excellent speakers today. Uh, I'll, I'll introduce them in the order that they're going to be speaking. We have Claire Wenham, who is uh, Assistant Professor of Global Health Policy at LSE and recently has been particularly researching gendered effects of the pandemic. Um, then we have Professor Paul Dolan, who's Professor of Behavioral Science, um, and you can listen to his latest Duck Rabbit podcast on polarization problems um, on any of the major podcast providers. Then we have Professor Andres Velasco, who is Professor of Public Policy and Dean of the School of Public Policy at the LSE. Recently, Andres tells me he's been trying to figure out how much countries can borrow before they go bust. I'm sure he'll elaborate on that in his talk. Um, last, but by no means least, we have uh, Mukaliga Banerjee, who is a, a, a social anthropologist in the LSE Anthropology Department, um, and her forthcoming book is Cultivating Democracy, Politics and Citizenship in Agrarian India. Um, if you want to tweet about today's event, we're using the hashtag LSECOVID19. Um, what we're going to do today, as we have four uh, outstanding LSE colleagues from four different academic disciplines, um, what they're going to do is they're going to spend five or six minutes explaining how or what they think has been the effect of the pandemic on how their discipline understands, uh, or essentially what their discipline brings to the table and what they feel their discipline has learned from the pandemic and the responses to the pandemic. You can ask your questions using the Q&A and you can also vote on the questions. Uh, and I will ask when we get to the Q&A after each of our speakers have had a chance to speak, I will then pick the uh, top questions to ask our panelists. So to start with, over to you, Claire. Thank you, Simon, and thank you for inviting me to be on this panel here today. So the title of this session is about lessons learned. And I kind of wanted to start with a caveat, which is, is it can we even learn lessons? Right. We're still in the in the throes of this pandemic. There were almost seven million cases of covid last week. I think we're definitely not in the lessons learned stage. That implies we're over. What I think we should be thinking about more is, you know, what can we do to stop this pandemic now? And then how are we going to prevent it happening next time? Now, I've been researching uh, governance and how governments uh, and the global community respond to or prevent, prevent, detect and respond to epidemics and pandemics for the last 10 to 15 years. And, you know, we knew this was going to happen. Right. We knew that there was going to be uh, an epidemic emerging, which we weren't going to be able to control. And we've been, you know, waving flags at policymakers and policymakers themselves knew that this was going to happen. And so why have we got to this state that we're in? If we knew it was going to happen and we had the tools designed to be able to do it, I think the bigger question is why? What has happened? What, what failure has occurred, which is why this has got to be the catastrophic pandemic that we're in? And the, the answer that I come to when I think about this is it's all about the politics, right? We've known that politics drives epidemics and we know that political decision making and the how the, the way in which we collectively as a global community respond to epidemics is vital for knowing actually how transmission is going to happen. But also at a national level, national decisions and national political decisions are having a big impact on the trajectory of the of the multiple different epidemics which are occurring in every country. 
And so actually what I think we've learned is this stands true. You know, a decade ago when I first um, started working in epidemiology department, people used to ask me, why do you need to study the politics of epidemics? I don't understand. Surely during an epidemic, governments will just take the best public health approach. And I said, well, that's not what's happened. And, you know, now I feel like at least um, I've justified my own existence as an academic researching the politics of epidemics in one way. But I think we need to think about how do we go forward from here? How do we create governance arrangements and ways to combat this? We now It's now well established. I think nobody can deny that it's a global event, right? We need to be able to come up with tools to combat transnational threats such as this. Now, prior to COVID, we had a, a system based on norms and law. So we had kind of the global normative commitment to global health security. We've all got to work together. Everyone knew we should be transparent and sharing information. And, and you know, at the time of crisis, we'd all work together to stop it happening. And this was codified in a piece of international law called the International Health Regulations, designed to really hold governments to account of what they have to do during pandemics and epidemics. Now, these, neither of these have worked. What we've seen during COVID is a retrenchment to national nationalist approaches to how we are responding to these epidemics. And so that asks a bigger question around what's the role of multilateralism going forward? How are we going to be able to work collectively to prevent this happening again? Because we know that diseases spread. They spread as people spread. As we begin to open up again, whether that's you know, in, our, in our local area or globally, we're going to see this happening again. There's been many calls, for example, for a, um, a suggestion of a pandemic treaty, right? We need political buy-in to be able to respond to this. The G7 uh, with the UK presidency this year is championing it. If any of you saw the independent panel, which came out yesterday, or reported yesterday, they've been championing it. And the idea is this is going to bring political commitment to the norms and the law that we already have in place. That would be great. Right. It would be really great if all governments could always to commit to always doing what they should be doing in the best interest of the globe or the best interest of public health. I just don't know how realistic that is. I think it's quite naive of governments to think that future leaders are going to act any differently to how they have acted. Right. Why do we think future leaders are going to be any different to what our current leaders are? And so I think until we get to a point where we can see governments committing more than just words and more than just saying yes we should all do this and actually seeing them doing it right and we can see that now you know why aren't we seeing governments committing to meaningful vaccine distribution meaningful you know ip waivers tech transfers getting jabs into as many arms as possible it's things like this that you know or giving who more money more power to be able to coordinate a meaningful response these are the deeds that we need governments to actually show us they can doing to be able to then maybe show a, a more fruitful way going forward of how we can respond to pandemics and i'll leave my six minutes there thanks Claire. can i just ask you a quick follow-up um do you think we will see patent waivers on the vaccines in the coming weeks? Because it looks like that may be the only way we're really going to get a rollout of vaccines across the world in the sort of distribution that we really need. Hard to say. Uh, I mean, the, what the Biden administration coming out last week saying they were going to support it is a massive boost for the, the for the reality of this happening. But the EU and China are still saying no. And so I think in the UK, so I think it's it's a more complex question. And it's also not just patent waivers. I think the other piece of the puzzle, which is vital, is 
we've got lots of places which might have capacity, but these are mRNA vaccines are really complicated. We need meaningful tech transfer and working with these organizations to be able to develop the mass rollout. It's not going to happen overnight, but you know, where there's a will, it could happen in, you know, three, six months. That's still gonna speed up the process much more quickly than leaving it to a few institutions that currently have the capacity to do so. Uh, thanks very much. I'm sure we'll we'll come back to many of these questions in the discussion, but let me turn to Paul. Yeah, thank you, Simon. Um, just actually, I'll, I'll start with the conclusion um, because it picks up on the vaccine point, um, which is the vaccines provided us a, an amazing natural science sol solution to get out of the pandemic. The behavioural science solution to deal with the pandemic, any future pandemic, and actually karma times too, will to be ensure will be to ensure in a way that hasn't happened over this past year or more, that we have a diversity of experience, perspective, opinion in the decision-making process. And at the same time, we fully capture the full impacts of every policy intervention. We capture, when we drop the pebble of policy intervention into the pond, and actually probably over the last year, we've seen the biggest stone of intervention ever put into the pond through um, social distancing measures and so on, that we not only capture the splash, and we not only look at the impact upon the things that are immediate, but we also look at the full range of the ripple effects that follow from that pebble being thrown in the pond. Um, and I think my punchline from the lessons that have been learned from the behavioral science perspective over this last year is that we've suffered from an enormous amount of situational blindness. This is whereby we pay attention to what's important because we're paying attention to it because it matters in front of us. Um, and we've focused to obviously a great extent and quite rightly so on the transmission risks on the hospitalizations and the deaths from COVID. Um, but at the same time, and it is a big but, at the same time, we've largely ignored and certainly haven't sought in any meaningful way to quantify and measure the impacts that have been borne downstream um, that have come about as a result of some of those policy interventions. And so it's important that we quantify and measure those effects. And that's a, that's a longer term project that we ought to be doing in karma times too. In the shorter term, in the policy making process, we need to ensure that we have different perspectives represented. It's, it's, it's obviously the case that over the last 15 months or whatever, there's been an enormous amount of uncertainty. You would expect there then to be lots of differences of opinion about how best to respond to the pandemic. And I'm not entirely sure that we've seen too much of that. Um, I think we've seen by and large, uh, considerable degree of groupthink. Um, so that would be my kind of conclusion. I probably used up half of my time to say the conclusion. I'll just take a couple of minutes to take a step back to the beginning, which is actually very kindly. You 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 mentioned the duck, the, the uh, duck rabbit podcast, which obviously everyone should listen to if they haven't yet already. Um, but this actually came about. I should thank Nick. I should thank Nick Chater from Warwick for drawing our attention to this actually in a panel discussion that we did about a year ago where it's a nice illusion for those that haven't seen it you you look at the image and you see either one of those animals but you don't ever see both simultaneously once you see one of those animals it's very hard to see the other animal um you're surround yourself with people that see the animal in the same way as you do 
your seek out evidence that supports the belief that you should see it in that way. You're very good at being able to dismiss evidence that would see the image differently. So in the end, it's obviously a duck. How the hell could any possibly, how could any sane person possibly see it as a rabbit? Um, and that is, I think we've seen that represented to some large degree over the, the last year, where the dominant social narrative, it's a very powerful narrative, um, has been to limit cases, transmissions, hospitalizations, and deaths, um, whilst not considering other narratives around harms that have been caused as an indirect effect of some of those policy measures. Um, and, and all of the, I think all of the behavioral science lessons have coalesced to create that sweet spot. Um, Kahneman and, and a co-author have a paper from a, a while ago looking at the behavioral biases that lead people to be hawks rather than doves. There's basically all of the behavioral biases lend themselves for you to be hawkish rather than to be dove-like in international relations. Um, and I think that we've seen that happen in a similar way in our response to the pandemic, where the all of the biases of um, following who went first from signaling how much we care about these issues and impacts of um, situational blindness. I think that that's actually been the single biggest bias that we've seen over this last year. And, and I think in conclusion, if I've used my five or six minutes without, I, I made some notes and I don't, I don't know why I ever do, because I end up just, you know, talking anyway without ever seeing whether I've actually said what I thought I was going to say. But um, I think in conclusion, um, we need to draw ourselves away from that situational blindness. We need to be adopting a broad perspective on the impacts. And just maybe as a personal comment at the end uh, on this, what, what kind of galvanized me to think about these things in these, in these ways over the last year was, was waking up on whatever, whenever it was, 23rd of March or whenever last year. And the first thought in my mind from lockdown was many of those kids in my kids' school and, and others that we, that we know who were being asked to stay at home in homes where they really shouldn't be spending very much time. Um, and I just wanted to be confident that the decision to lock down, which may have been the right decision, I'm not for one moment saying that it was the wrong decision, but what I am for one moment saying is I'd be much more confident in it if there was a perspective around the decision-making table that was alert to the consequences and impacts on those kids that were being asked to stay at home. Provocative stuff, Paul. I mean, let me push you a little bit. It's okay having other people around the table, but is there is there anything you think in hindsight that we perhaps in Britain, for example, could have done differently early on? <clears throat> so that's a really good question. So I'm I'm not going to speak outside of my disciplinary expertise and talk because there are there are there's clearly differences of opinion about the epidemiological data and what and what we should have done and when. I think it's really interesting. So if, I'd like to answer an easier question, perhaps, is that because because the because the harder question is what should have been done earlier. I mean, I actually probably I don't know. I'm, I mean, I'm speaking outside of, of of what I know. Maybe we should have shut borders in you know January. Maybe you know, but all those things that would have stopped the virus coming in in the ways that it did in February, and March. Who, who, uh, maybe. Um, but given where we were, given that we were an international global hub, um, and given that we were in the position that we were in in March. <clears throat> then what's the best policy responses given given where we were then? And that's that's really where I've kind of focused most of most of my efforts. And I think, 
you know, again, you can make a, you know, this, I don't want to get into this duck, in, 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 you know, falling into these polarized positions because that's that's that is actually really harmful. There is clearly legitimate basis on which we lock down in March and April, but by the time we're into May, June, July, August, we should be starting to think about ways in which we more accurately capture the full effects of those policy interventions. There's no there's no kind of excuse for not catching up. I think. Um, to the point at which we're now, you know, we're still not in a position where, you know, we when we when we shut the schools again in November, whenever it was, we still had so many children that didn't have access to laptops and Internet and mobile that, you know, we, we should have been intervening in ways that were ready for the next stage if that was what we were going to do next. And it just felt like that we were in this kind of broken system where these different perspectives really weren't properly taken into account. Thank you. OK, Andres, did, can The Economist do better than The Behavioural Scientists? Or have they done better? Thank you. Um, the economists have learned a lot in this crisis. Um, I'm a macroeconomist. I've spent the last 25, 30 years learning about crises. And we've had, you know, a million crises. We had a big financial crisis 10, 12 years ago. We've had debt crises, banking crises, unemployment crises. We never had one like this one. In the following sense, Simon, we never had a crisis in which government told workers not to work and firms not to produce. That has no precedent. So I think the first thing that we should confess is that this has all been learning by doing for economists, as it has been probably for a lot of other professions, but in particular, you know, the novelty of the shock um, is very, very deep and very, very substantial when it comes to economics. So what have we learned? We've learned lots of things. Let me outline maybe four or five things which I find worth uh, reflecting on. First thing we've learned is that it can always be bigger. I mean, the crisis. I was in government 12 years ago when the world financial crisis happened. And, um, you know, I gave lots of speeches saying, we will never have a crisis bigger than this one. You know, this is bigger than the Great Depression. Uh, you know, this is as bad as it comes. Well, world GDP was still growing, barely, but was still growing in 2009. Um, world GDP fell by over three percentage points last year. We didn't really have worldwide data back in 1930, but I'm pretty sure that the drop in employment and the drop in output we had last year was bigger than anything humanity has had in the last century and a half. So first thing to keep in mind, it was very, very big. It may be short-lived, touch wood, but it was very, very deep. Second thing that we economists learn, and this is going to sound a little nerdy, I apologize in advance, but uh, it is important for drawing the, the right lessons, is that supply shocks can become demand shocks. When you tell firms not to produce, when you tell workers, please don't jump in the tube and go to work, that's a supply shock. You're constraining the ability of the economy to supply goods. What was less evident, and you will not find this lesson in the textbook, is that if I can't go to work, that's bad for my firm's supply. Well, you know, we professors can work from home, but a lot of people cannot. Uh, but at the same time, if uh, I am not the person who can work from home and my income goes down, well, I'm not buying as much as I would have otherwise. 
So there is a demand shock that uh, is, you know, has to be added to the supply shock. The economy gets hit by sort of two shocks at once. And of course, if you're an open economy, uh, you get hit by a bunch of other shocks because world trade collapses. Uh, the prices of your exports are likely to go down. You know, if you're a poor country and you have a lot of migrants in rich countries, remittances go down, etc. And of course, capital flows uh, have also gone down for many countries. So what is initially one domestic shock can become five or six worldwide shocks. And that explains how severe and how deep the recession was last year. What else have we learned? We have learned that if you're a rich country, you can borrow and borrow and borrow, and we still don't know what the, what the ceiling or what the limit is. You know, we have seen things that I did not think we would see um, as a macroeconomist, if somebody had told me the United States and the United Kingdom would be running fiscal deficits of 15 points of GDP and higher, I would have said, you know, what are you smoking? Can I have some? Um, and, um, you know, those are the numbers. They are absolutely gigantic. Uh, and, uh, you know, the UK and the US are not alone. You know, even serious, fiscally austere Germany has been borrowing like crazy. Pretty much every rich country has. Of course, this has been happening at a very unusual time because not only is the crisis deep, the other big anomaly in the world economy is that interest rates have been zero for about a decade now. So of course, you can have a big debt if the interest rate is zero or negative because the carrying cost of that debt is zero or negative. The big, big question, you know, the elephant in the room, and I don't have a definitive answer to this, is what happens when interest rates return to normal? You know, GDP of, you know, debt equal to all of GDP, as we have in the UK today, is not an issue with interest rates of zero or minus one. If interest rates go back to being four or five percent, is that debt manageable? Is it sustainable? You know, who goes bust? How do they go bust? That is the very, very big question, which I hope we will not have to answer in the next year or two, but maybe we will. The other thing we learned, and of course, only naive economists could learn this, uh, it, it's, it's, it's long been a lesson for everybody else. We have learned that this is a very unfair world. You know, it's much easier if you're a rich country than if you're a poor country. Rich countries uh, were able to borrow and sustain a fiscal effort, handing out checks, furlough schemes, money for small companies, cash for households, etc., uh, to the tune of 11 or 12% of GDP on average. Those are gigantic programs. So, you know, to misquote the former head of the European Central Bank, rich governments have done whatever it takes. If you need it, here it is, here's a check. And that's true of left-wing governments, and that's also true of conservative governments, as it was in the US and the UK. On the other hand, if you're a middle-income country or if you're a poor country, it's not whatever it takes, it's whatever you can afford. The IMF reported last month in its big World Economic Outlook report that on average, middle-income countries spent half of what rich countries spent, as a share of GDP, of course. And on average, the very poor countries spent one half of what middle-income countries spent, which in turn was one half 
of what rich countries spend. So the numbers are about, you know, two and a half percent of GDP, five percent of GDP, 10 or 11 percent of GDP. So big, huge differences in the ability of government to respond to the pandemic, which in turn are based on big, huge differences on the ability of governments to mo mobilize resources, either from domestic sources, taxation, capital markets, or from international sources. And the last thing we learned, Simon, and I will, uh, this will be my last point, is that confronted with a crisis of this magnitude, and confronted with such a gigantic asymmetry in the ability of rich, middle-income, and poor countries to tap resources, the world political and economic arrangements responded very, very poorly. You know, I'm not one to sort of, you know, like to uh, fly, fly the flag of the developing world and wag my finger at the rich countries. But the truth of the matter is that the rich countries and the international institutions this time around really did very, very little, much less, say, than uh, the G20 led by the UK did back in 2010. I'll give you a couple of numbers uh, just to illustrate that point, and I will stop. At the beginning of the crisis, the IMF said, the developing world will need $2 trillion to make sure that they get through this crisis. And the IMF added, we've got about a trillion and we will lend that. Well, it turns out that the IMF of that trillion has only lent out about 200 billion. And if you narrow the definition, in fact, the number goes down to about 85 billion. $85 billion sounds like a lot of money, but in the world of international finance, it is absolute peanuts. Many of the other uh, ideas, like endowing the IMF with special resources through these uh, funny-looking things called special drawing rights, many countries wanted that. The Trump administration vetoed it. The IMF did not do it, etc., etc., etc. So the truth is that uh, the politicians were all very keen to talk about world solidarity and to say that no one is safe until everyone is safe. But the truth is that there were mostly words. When it came to money, capital flows, emergency lending to poor countries, etc., very, very little was done. And as a result, not only was the crisis deep everywhere, the big, big difference is that, is that in the rich countries, it'll be deep but short-lived. In the poor countries, it'll be deep and very persistent. And that's where I think we will pay the price, not just in, in lives and livelihoods, but in years of schooling uh, and in many other dimensions, which will really badly affect the, the quality of life and the life generally of people in developing countries. I think that's the last lesson. And I think, Simon, it is a very sad lesson indeed. Let me stop there. Thanks, Andres. Very salutary words. Let me um, ask you a question. As a political scientist, my instinct is to ask why. So why, why, why do you think there wasn't that response by the rich governments? I mean, you know, it's conjecture, of course, but what's your sort of instinct? Is it to do, for example, with the fact that most of these developed countries are dealing with their own very high levels of internal inequality? And so that makes it politically impossible for them to maybe make a more generous offer to the, to the global south? I don't think inequality is uh, the issue here because, yes, inequality may have gone up in the UK and the US. It hasn't really in Germany or in Scandinavia. Uh, and nonetheless, they more or less uh, responded in the same way. Uh, 
I'll mention the things that come to mind and we can we can discuss them later. Uh, the first thing is that the political climate in rich countries changed and clearly there's an element of populism even in the countries that are not ruled by populism. Uh, so um, saying that we've got to turn inwards, that we need to uh, take care of our people first, that we've taken too many migrants as it is, et cetera, et cetera, that resonates pretty much throughout the rich world. Secondly, I think we were unlucky in that the crisis hit when many influential countries were led by singularly incapable people, the United States being, of course, the prime example of that. Um, out of deference to my host here, I will not say anything about the UK, but you can guess what I think. Um, and of course, many other large countries, India, Brazil, Mexico, uh, also, uh, you know, other people on this panel may or may not agree, I don't know, but it strikes me that many of the large developing countries also uh, have been very, very, very badly led. Last but not least, uh, I think that, um, you know, mobilizing more resources means, you know, requires having robust international institutions uh, with a lot of backing from the owners, namely the rich countries. And I think for many reasons, which we can discuss later, the World Bank, the IMF, and the, and the regional development banks are not as strong and not as bold as they used to be, at least in previous crises. So Thank you very put, much. It, put it all together and it's not pretty. Lots of food for thought. I suspect, Mukulika, you'll pick up on some of those themes. So um, what, do you, what do you feel you've learned for, uh, as an anthropologist from uh, the pandemic? So as a political anthropologist who draws much of my empirical evidence from India, um, I'll offer some observations on what the pandemic in India has taught us, not just about India, but about the interrelationship more generally between public health and politics. Now, Alex Deval has a recent book called New Pandemics, Old Politics, 200 Years of War on the Disease and Its Alternatives. And he points out the use of the war metaphor in dealing with pandemics past and present. The metaphor indicates an external enemy, the virus, that has to be fought by frontline workers and strategy. The nation needs to pull together. A pandemic therefore requires strong leadership to conquer the pathogen. Deval points out the military metaphor facilitates actions that would be inappropriate in peacetime, building consensus at the expense of plurality of views, dissenting or alternative voices are seen to be detrimental to the war effort. The need to act as one nation rather than, selfishly, uh, rather than selfishly is hammered into the population. Intrusive or surveillance measures are justified. Those advocating for democracy and social justice can be positioned as saboteurs if they dissent. Pandemics, therefore, are not good for democratic freedoms. But as these recent reports show, Democratic backsliding has begun, had begun well before the pandemic. And I'll just show you a couple of uh, recent uh, figures for this. So if you look at this, uh, uh, this is from the Varieties of Democracy uh, Index annual report for last year. Uh, the VDEM report shows, I mean, all you need to note are the circles on the right, the red and the blue. And you can see that the share of the world's population living in autocracies had quite significantly increased by 20 percentage points between 2010 and 2020. The second circles are the number of countries threatening freedom of expression. Uh, that's gone up from 19 to 32. 
and the share of the world's population living in autocratic autocratizing countries has gone up very significantly the second image is uh, this one where they look bdem looked this year in this year's report at whether covid-19 played a role in this democratic backsliding so is there what they call a pandemic backsliding a pandem index and this pandemic democratic violations index if you look at it uh that measures between 11th march and 10th december 2020 you look at the box where i've marked out india you see india is in the category of major violations right and the violations are discrimination against minorities violations of fundamental rights excessive use of force uh, uh disinformation campaigns and so on so if you look at south asia in particular you see a very marked contrast between Pakistan and Bangladesh say whose uh index is actually looking good it's going up whereas India and Sri Lanka are in a very sharp decline so india has not is not doing well in democratic terms so one would expect it to be dealing better during an academic according to deval's thesis of the war metaphor now while india fulfills the criteria of disinformation of curbing dissent and insisting on what the prime minister calls positivity when real numbers are reported and we and there is a powerful leader in place but what you're getting is an altogether different kind of authoritarianism who in seven years we have a powerful leader in india who is increasingly centralized power in a federal country with 29 different states he's used his unmatched unpo- his unmatched popularity to kind of lull the country into complacency by late 2020 basically to further his own personal and political agenda so you remember in january 2021 this year he was found in davos proclaiming how india had saved the world from covid it was the pharmacy of the world it was going to vaccinate everyone um while less than 2% of indian citizens had been vaccinated today means in january it was much lower the figure there's been hubris uh in february in preparation of elections and religious festivals the ruling political party declared victory over the virus even while experts and opposition mps warned of a second wave an eagerness to win more and more elections meant that they were spread out over weeks and months through march and april to facilitate the prime minister himself to be star campaigner at rallies with millions of people unmasked uh each of them spreading each of them being sort of super spreader events uh furthering an ideological uh right wing hindu uh agenda chauvinism uh where millions were invited specially to come to a religious festival in northern india to bathe in the sacred ganges uh and each attendee going back and they come from all over india each attendee became a vector for spreading the virus uh way into the hinterland the second wave therefore that is currently ravaging large parts of india is entirely man made it's the result of incompetence and hubris and people are not dying because of the virus but because of a lack of preparedness there is no oxygen there's no remdesivir there is no there are no icu beds and so on now as part of lsc's uh, response when a bunch of us started to uh, do research uh, last year 
my colleague, Professor Maitush Khatak in economics and I began to study the pandemic and I dare say we continue to do this. Uh, this is um, uh, what we were doing and we had two excellent uh, graduate students of the school uh, who were a postdoc and a graduate student working with us as RAs. Methodologically, it was a huge challenge because we were hampered by our inability to access data. Um, I'm an anthropologist, I need to talk to people. Uh, Maitrish uh, relies on data, but this was in real time. How do you uh, generate data for a moving target, so to speak? So we relied on data collected by excellent academics based in think tanks, universities, and in NGOs in India, who were also putting out excellent analysis alongside. And so it frankly has been quite a challenge to provide a new take on the data, something that hadn't been said before. Further, as an anthropologist, I was very keen to retrieve the voices of, of people worst hit by the sudden lockdown. And so we collaborated with a journalist, Barkhadat, who spent, who provided over 100 interviews talking to migrants on the road. Um, and what we did was we annotated her interviews with our own notes, as you can see my notes on the side. Now, there are several uh, conclusions that we have offered, uh, but what we did do was to put out an initial piece on the first uh, anniversary of the lockdown of in India. So finally, to conclude, I would say that there are a few things that we can say uh, on the basis of what we have observed over the 12 months. The first lockdown, which was successful uh, in stemming the infection for a more secure citizenry, created a situation what economists would call an aggregate shock, in which the usual networks of state, market, community disappeared at four hours notice for nearly 30 million Indians, which is 20% of the urban workforce. The word that best describes the condition of Indian citizens is the word Atmanirbharta or self-reliance. Now, this was used completely in a different context by the prime minister rather jingoistically to sort of announce India's slightly protectionist manufacturing uh, policy, um, especially flush with India's vaccine manufacturing capacity. But in truth, given the spectacular dereliction of duty uh, by the government, Atmanirbharta has taken on a whole new meaning with people using social media and friends and networks, basically creating a community through their community to arrange oxygen, drugs, hospital beds to treat the families. There was no state, there was something of a black market and lots of community. The pandemic is far from over in India. And as we continue and as we watch these figures, which are today's figures, today's data, you can see there is a worrying rise in a number of trends. Uh, and you can do this for different parts of India. Uh, we really do continue to learn new lessons uh, from this pandemic. Thank you. Thanks, Mukulika. Just a quick question before we open up, and we've got some great questions in the Q&A, which I'm going to ask you all. Uh, but let me just first ask you, Mukulika, do you get a sense that there's going to be any political consequences for Modi from the, the way, the, sort of the way the second wave of the pandemic has now played out in India? 
Um, there could be. It's the first time in uh, a long since Modi gained power in 2014 that there is vocal criticism of Modi, even by uh, his uh, most, maybe more, not most his most ardent supporters, but certainly by people who voted for him. And this is largely drawn for the urban middle class who have been hit worst by the second wave. So uh, that segment, which is a very important voter segment for the BJP and for Modi, has been hit by the second wave. Uh, there's already early indications. Modi campaigned very, very hard. One of the super spreader events that I uh, mentioned uh, uh, earlier uh, in West Bengal, the state that he was desperate to win power and not only, and again, there were sort of fairly hubristic claims of we're going to win over 200 seats out of 292. They won 77. So they've just had a big drubbing there. So suddenly, uh, you know, the, the idol does have clay feet. Uh, it's possible, but it's a long way to the next general elections. We're not, we can't uh, say as the US had a chance with Trump's mismanagement of COVID, the, res the result of that was evident in November in the way the country polled. India doesn't have nat national elections until 2024, 20 which is a long way away. Thanks very much. Okay, the first question we have on our Q&A is from Arturo Montejo. Um, how can we have a more equitable world if the richest country, if the richest countries continue to make decisions in their own interest? For example, in the vaccine distribution. Who wants to take that one? I mean, I think that that relates to, to quite a few. I mean... I guess it's a normative question. What should we be doing? What What's the solution to some of the questions that Andres raised? None of you want to take it, a difficult question. Claire, what do I ask you? Sorry. <laughs> I mean, well, there's two ways of looking at that question. So the first one is not just about global inequities, but national inequities at all. I mean, in any country in the world, you can see the vast inequities which this pandemic hasn't caused, but has exposed, whether those be gender inequities, social inequities, ethnic inequities, uh, you know, pay gap inequities, that they're, they're multiple different inequities. And I think it seems unlikely that governments are going to look to the global level until you know, if they're not willing to look over those. And certainly we haven't necessarily seen meaningful commitment to try and you know, level up those uh, commitments, I would argue, or those different inequalities. Certainly in the UK, there's been kind of lots of posturing, but not much actual policy change to try and mitigate some of those inequalities. And at the global level, my suggestion would be to demonstrate to governments why it is in their interest to try and overcome some of these inequalities. So in the vaccine distribution issue, it's not just a moral issue that we should get as many jabs into as many arms as possible, right? Yes, of course, it, you know, it is, a, it is clearly a moral um, argument, but economically, we're, we're not going to be able to recover from this crisis until the pandemic is over. And so the sooner we can get over this, you know, the sooner we'll be able to recreate whatever our economy is going to look like and there's been some modeling from the world bank which have shown the, the the stark figures of you know the economic impact and actually how it is in in g7's economic interest to actually waiver patents and do the tech transfer because the returns will be much greater because the bounce back will be much sooner and i think that message hasn't got through yet and claire isn't there also an epic epidemiological argument i'm not an epidemiologist but you know that research better than i do which is that you know unless with the pandemic going crazy in India, there's an increased probability that there will be a, 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 a variant that is that is not, uh, you know, susceptible to the vaccines that we've got. I mean, that, that's also a kind of, 
you know, uh, it's in our interest to actually help the world get over this faster. Otherwise, there may well be new variants coming along. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. There is. And, you know, where wherever you've got widespread transmission, that's where variants will emerge. That's what we've seen occurring, not just in COVID, but in all uh, viruses previously. And, you know, the argument that you see come back with was, oh, you know, we need to protect patent protection and innovation for the future. So we need to make sure that next time there's a major health crisis, that those that capacity is there to be able to do the innovation and get the drugs out. Um, but but that innovation will be there. It just might be that, um, you know, the technological development happens in India or Bangladesh or Nigeria and not in the UK or the US. And then we'll have the same vaccine politics playing out, but just we won't be, uh, you know, holding all the cards. I think that's the risk that governments are, are seeing right now. Um, I'm next going to move to Ronald Mendel. He asked a great question. What can we learn from the approach taken by New Zealand where there were very few deaths and the incidence of coronavirus was minimised in comparison with England's experience. Who wants to take that one? Can I just say something to that, uh, Simon? Um, New Zealand's a very interesting example because, you know, the war metaphor that I talked about, New Zealand did not adopt it, right? So it, it was about the slogan there was, we the five million. So it was right from the start, you know, one of the successes of Jacinda was that she pitched it as a collective problem that they had to collectively fight and collectively buy into rather than a top-down set of directives which you uh, dispute or flout or or not and so on. So there is a subtle difference between people buying in because the leaders tells you or the scientists tell you to stay at home and believing the science, which is explained very well. She had a fantastic color coding system for explaining rules. Uh, There was transparency and there was uh, getting people to behave collectively as a community. And part of what I was uh, trying to get at through the India example is that the one thing that you see is when you get autocratic or indeed democratic states, it doesn't matter if you're going to deal with it as a war where you think centralized control is everything, where it has to be about surveillance and punitive measures, uh, you're likely to get less of a success rate. You know, you, I mean, you can have Dominic Cummins drive off to Hull, but uh, but in, in New Zealand, they were successful because everybody felt this was a collective endeavor. Now, that's a very different model of even how we think of politics as cooperation rather than as conflict. Equally, New Zealand has several advantages lots of other places don't. It's rich, it's small, it's on the far side of the world, it's an island, it's low population density. I mean, there's lots of other things going for it. I mean, is that, Andres, I mean, I've named some economic things. Is that also your perspective as a sort of political economist? You're muted, sir. I'm a little worried that we're going to jump to lots of conclusions very quickly because, uh, I mean, I feel that, uh, yes, we have learned a few things, but there's a lot more that we need to learn. You know, a few months ago, we were saying, oh, New Zealand will, you know, is out of this. New Zealand had a second wave. Germany was supposed to be a leader. Germany had a second wave. Uruguay was the one country in Latin America which had been spared the crisis, and suddenly Uruguay has more death per capita than anybody else. So, um, you know, I, I... if, if 200 years was too little time to say something about the French Revolution, you know, 200 days is certainly too little time to say something about COVID. 
Uh, but I did want to, once I have the microphone, Simon, let me hog it for just one second to say something about the pre previous question. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think that, uh, that uh, you know, moral invocations to rich country leaders are going to get us very far, but uh, maybe practical uh, uh, concerns will. If you include China, the developing world today is quite a bit more than one half of world GDP. So if rich countries want to grow and trade, they better, you know, make sure that other countries in the world are prospering. Uh, because, uh, you know, British exports don't just go to the EU. Of course, you know, every day that goes by, fewer British exports go to the EU. They go to lots of other places, including India and China, Latin America. Secondly, it is not as though the world is short of liquidity. If anything, we're swimming in liquidity. Central banks are printing, you know, sterling and dollars like, like there's no tomorrow. So the failure is one of institutions that can channel that liquidity where it's most needed and is most needed in the South Africa's and Nigeria's and Indonesia's and Brazil of the world. So, it, you know, we're, we're not asking, you know, hardworking middle class people in the rich world to forgo part of their paycheck. Uh, the liquidity is out there. It just has to be rechanneled and transformed. And what do we need for that? We need better institutions. Um, you know, credit is all about institutions because I give you something today and you repay me tomorrow. So we need some institutions to make sure that you will repay me tomorrow. And that is where we fall short. And fixing that should not be an impossible political job. The next, thanks, Andres. The next question I think I'm going to target to Paul. Um, what might other countries learn from UK confidence in science, e.g. extraordinary support for clinical trials, vaccine uptake, and greater than 20 million app downloads? Yeah, that's a super question. I'm going to be, I'm going to uh, also take the opportunity just to reflect on a couple of questions that came before. Um, just want to say something about um, the the moral case for caring about others. Um, often people will talk about that in terms of empathy. Um, empathy requires us to be able to walk in the shoes of somebody else. That's much easier if they have the same size feet. Um, what we instead need is compassion, which is which is a less emotional, more detached caring for others. And that will en enable us to place the concerns for others in a much more rational, consequentialist calculus. Um, on on the um, responses, you know, it there this it one of the I talked about stories and narratives, and they are significant. Actually, do you know, I learned just as an aside because this, this is kind of new news to me. I learned the other day that Boris Johnson got about 300,000 more votes in 2019 than May did in 2017. It's hardly anything. One was an electoral success, the other one an, an electoral disaster. It's all in the stories, it's not in, the, not, not in the stats. So once the narratives get creative, they become very powerful. And one narrative that we don't like, so it's an awful narrative because it has no agency, is the role of randomness and luck. Right. Um, People, people hate it about themselves. They say things like, you make your own luck. Right? Well, you can't make randomness, right? Um, and, you know, there is just, to some considerable degree, and I think the public inquiry may wish to consider this as well, um, that we're going to have in the UK. And by the way, it ought to consider, going back to my earlier points, ripple effects as well as the splashes. I'm very concerned that we're just going to look at 
whether if we'd locked down earlier, we would have saved more lives. I think it should also look at where was the education department in the decision to close schools. Um, is that is that we we're just unlucky being where we are. London is London is in the is in the sweet spot of having it bad. New Zealand is in a sweet spot of being able to manage it well. And whilst, of course, there's lots of things that people did that would have made that better and worse, there is just the role of luck and randomness. And it's a, it's a horrible narrative, but actually it probably played a really big part. Um, and, and to just really, I love what Andres said about, you know, 200 years, 200 days, is that, is that I think um, whatever your views about what Sweden did, what one thing that Anders Tegnell did say was the judges at the end of all of this, not at the beginning. And, you know, Sweden didn't shut any of its schools. Everyone under 16 stayed in schools. Um, they will be impacts that will be born into the longer term that we need to properly take account of. Um, so in answer to your question, what was the question? <laughs> question was one about uh, trust in science. Trust in science. Yes. Well, that's really interesting. There was a really interesting, I, when, when the vaccine was coming out, I, I was, people were, you know, variously everywhere. I went, I went on Sky News a few times about vaccine hesitancy. There was all this kind of like real concern that people weren't going to take the vaccine. And it is true, of course, that there are significant population subgroups for whom we haven't been able to get vaccinated and people have, have got not very much trust in the vaccines. But it's been extraordinarily successful in the degree to which people have willingly engaged in the vaccination program and i do it does it does give us it does give us a little bit more faith doesn't it i think in um science and trust and also optimism i think one of the things that we've seen we've got used to this narrative again over the last year of how god awful things are and things have been bad and we shouldn't underplay them but at the same time <laughs> we've had enormous success stories the vaccination is an enormous success story um, and we should be celebrating that. We should be positive about that. Um, and um, the question then becomes, there is a really important ethical challenge, which we won't have time for in this panel discussion, about the legitimacy of, of asking children to be vaccinated. Um, I think that's a really interesting moral challenge and moral question. Um, when vaccines have typically historically been, and I um, stand to be told that I'm wrong on this, um, largely for populations at risk and once those populations at risk have been vaccinated then that's that tends to be where we stop we don't ask people that are that aren't at risk to be vaccinated for those those that are um it's just an interesting question i'd like to see us be able to discuss more openly in the fullness of time but we don't um, vaccinate people. people just for their own personal risk do we, no, no, we, we no, vaccinate no. people for the public good which is the about the, it's about oh, well, no absolutely no you're absolutely right about that and i was i wouldn't i wouldn't want you to misinterpret what i've said um there is normally some personal benefit that comes from vaccines i think now the question then becomes this is what you've what you've raised is a really significant question about the legitimate role of security and public health that's that's actually where we really need to be having a serious discussion and a serious conversation have we shifted and to what this and, and to what extent have we over the last 15 months or more to a world in which our willingness to engage in security measures has increased to an extent that may have fundamentally changed the relationship we have with the state that's that's a, that again is a really interesting question. And to speak to Andres, that's a question that's going to take us 200 years to be able to answer. 
Okay. That's so a really you... nice way to get out of answering anything, Andres, by the way. I'm, I'm now going <laughs> to It used to be, I used to always say context matters. That was always my get out of jail free card. I'm now going to say 200 years, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to back, go back to India. Mukulika, we have a question from, uh, I think, an Indian student um, who says, um, uh, every, everyone is criticizing the Modi government for handling the pandemic. However, um, ha, what off, what has the opposition leaders of India offered in particular? Uh, you know, how would they have done things differently? Um, well, I think I mean, in November uh, 2020, a delegation of 31 opposition MPs submitted a report to the government, uh, warning of a second wave, uh, uh, pointing out that there was a significant danger. This was when India was really relaxed. Everybody was going on holiday and beginning to plan sort of New Year's parties. Um, and in November itself, there was this warning it was completely ignored. Uh, the medical community, uh, that not the opposition, but the scientists uh, warned in February, that was ignored. I have to say, Rahul Gandhi, who is otherwise, you know, uh, he can't win elections. The Congress just doesn't win elections. But Rahul Gandhi, as uh, the leader of the Congress, has uh, been warning about the pandemic since January 2020. Whatever else you might think about him on the pandemic, he's been ahead of the curve uh, at every stage. The other thing to say about the vaccine policy, because that is really what is key at the moment, as we've been talking about, uh, the part of the problem with the confusion around vaccine policy in India at the moment is because Indian, the Indian government is not doing what all governments are doing, which is that acquiring the vaccine has to be a central government initiative. And then you disperse in a, in a federal system to state governments. Uh, that has been compromised, which is a serious problem. So even though a lot of opposition parties control a number of the other state governments, uh, you've seen Kerala has been the big sort of poster girl of uh, this whole story because the health minister uh, there, she's been fantastic and advising governments all over the world uh, because they got it right. They have a completely different way of running the state. Uh, that's an opposition party. So uh, there's plenty of evidence of people doing things differently. But there are certain things in a pandemic that you need central leadership and you need the central government to do. Thank you, Claire. I'm going to ask you, I mean, it's the last question because we only got a couple of minutes left, but I'll ask Claire to go first on this one. Um, I've got to find the question now, hold on, which is about um, why has there been so little policy transfer and policy learning? Um, actually, I actually think there has been quite a lot of policy transfer, but what's your, what's your perspective as a sort of health policy expert? Do, do you think we have been learning or have we not learned enough from each other? I think there's been a mixed answer to that question. So, for example, I think there's been um, policy transfer occurring kind of bilaterally almost, right, from like one country to another country. But there's been very little policy transfer from WHO downwards, which I, I would say is a big problem, right? WHO is the kind of technical leader in this stuff, and it does all the collecting, you know, collecting the evidence and saying this is what you should do. And governments just weren't, they kind of just ignored it and went to kind of bilateral learning instead. Now, that there's a lot of reasons for that and uh, remittedly WHO hasn't always got it right particularly recently there's been a lot of controversy around the airborne transmission issues um, but you know why aren't we getting better at learning from each other particularly I think south north learning I mean I certainly remember being in meetings with the cabinet in um, February March last year and them saying to me yeah but like but Liberia is not London right it won't work here and it's like, well, well, yes, a lot of these things are really straightforward. And let's learn from the places 
and the governments that have been through these crises before. And whether that is South Korea or Liberia, it shouldn't matter. Right. And I think that's a key weakness, because particularly if you look at the countries that have done well, with the exception of Brazil, but that's a whole different story. You know, they've all had recent biosecurity or health security issues and they've learned from that. And, you know, they've been humble about learning from that, which I think many richer countries haven't been. I think that's a great way to end the event. I mean, we like to think that we know everything. We really don't. Uh, 200 days is definitely not enough. Not sure it's 200 years, but, but <laughs> thank you all very much. Uh, thank you, Ukalika, Claire, Andres, and Paul. And thank you for the great questions from the audience. Hope you enjoyed the event and you'll be able to watch uh, uh, and download the event from the LSC Public Events website.